Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, we meet with Bill Prince, journalist, editor, and longtime watch commentator, and longtime friend of the brand. Bill and I are going to do a review of 2023 and all the activities within the horological environment. Bill, how are you? I'm very well, Faye. Horological environment. Congratulations. I'm not sure I would be able to get that out at this time of day. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, well, it's my favourite podcast of the year. I always enjoy the review. Um, we obviously do them at various points, namely straight after the fairs. Um, we're looking at the year ahead and what our predictions are or how we felt the launches have been. There's a lot of activity now um, throughout the year. So if, just to frame what you and I are going to talk about for the next hour or so, and we usually go off topic, so I don't mind if we do, <laughs> let's look at the landscape of the watch world, developments in the Watches of Switzerland group, um, key moments and milestones. So, for example, LVMH Watch Week, uh, Watches and Wonders, which is always the key one for us, GPHG is getting much bigger. I'd also like to touch on iconic products and launches. Um and maybe have a little look at the year ahead. Mm, sounds good. I can't quite believe we're back here. I mean, this year has gone at lightning speed. And I think to your point, I think that's largely because it's almost as if the industry is invested in regular moments throughout the year. And brands that traditionally only used one fair in the year in which to launch all of their product have now taken to releasing product more regularly throughout the year. So it's just, I think it's just accelerated the pace of, um, of everything we discussed today, but also it's made this year feel very short by comparison to others. Absolutely. How do you find as a journalist those smaller launches and events throughout the year in addition to the big milestone of the watch fair? Because that hasn't gone away. What we're seeing is the importance of watches and wonders now that Basel World has has dissipated i suppose um, but the other events are becoming more relevant yes i'd say so i think as you say basel world um hit the skids should we say in 2018 um so we knew then that there was change afoot and certain brands had peeled away i think basel world as most of these standalone fairs had become very expensive to smaller brands. So we'd seen more activity from smaller brands generally. Then Basel World went the way of all things. And then obviously we went into an interregnum where there was no major uh, gathering, at least in person, uh, throughout the COVID period, um, which gave Watchers and Wonders, as is now, the old SIHH as was, to rebuild and reconfigure as Watchers and Wonders. So we saw that growth. But at the same time, we had noted the brands that had left the fairs and what that created in turn was, I think, for the journalists, an opportunity to see how brands, when acting individually on their own terms, how creative they could be. And we can talk about the individual brands if you wish, but we now have a almost a sort of a parallel universe where there are brands that now firmly sit outside of the big trade fairs and other brands that move between the two and those brands that have stayed firmly within that annualized moment in Geneva at Watches and Wonders. And that's what's made it really kind of fascinating to watch how this has actually brokered deals across the different brands as to when and how they release their watches. And for instance, for the I think for the first time, Patek released a Patek Philippe released a piece out, out of the traditional fair season. Rolex have done so now. So we're kind of seeing this sort of um, 
use the word dissipation. It's a, it's a good word. It's it's that kind of loosening, that kind of re re relaxing of how the brands feel about inter interacting both with their retailers and with the audience for watch purchasing. So I think from a journalistic point of view, it's just added to the opportunity to write about watches. And I think it's also given us a much better guide to how the individual brands wish to be perceived. Do you think it keeps them more relevant when there's activity throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, I think if I was if I was wearing my um, tutor's hat, I'd say we would like or we would expect there to be sort of more informal communication between brands as to who's doing what when, because we see the diaries get um, quite busy. And often we'll see major launches appearing, not outside of the trade fair moment, which we can come back to, but even across the year, you can see quite important moments for individual brands banging into other brands' activity. And I think that's a shame because it means that, again, they're losing that sort of opportunity to have that moment for themselves. But we saw this, and I think to the more general point, what we have seen, and this again started, well, Instagram 2014, we kind of really saw this ramp up in the last 10 years, which is that uh, the fairs themselves became so inundated with launches that were being carried on social media platforms specifically immediately that the brands were losing ground very rapidly. There was just not enough airspace. There wasn't enough bandwidth for all of the brands to get the purchase power that they would normally have expected for coverage. So the brands have had to step away from those very, very high traffic moments in a way because otherwise they were going to get lost in the noise over what became as we called them in the, at the time instagram pieces watches that had almost been designed specifically to grab the attention on one day and i think brands recognized that was going to be a problem going forward so they have had to release their own their own schedule i think to make more space for their own product there's also the flip side where we work with a brand that has a new launch every month it makes that keeps them relevant um I imagine that's what their their theory is behind it. I don't know what the happy balance is because the intensity of the of watches and wonders and launches that are only relevant at that point, the launch of the product, it doesn't necessarily land. Then, of course, we, we we're very familiar with it being um, phased throughout the year and deliveries potentially sort of twelve months after it, its launch. But um, there's a couple that are are, are very good at it. Um, but I think it's also very relevant what you said on the communication piece and the clashes. So from a commercial perspective if we're doing if we want to launch uh, watches of switzerland uh, either a first to market or we want to do a takeover or a pop-up or really celebrate the launch that w w with the brand but we're not given much communication it's really difficult to give that delivery to the client when it could be it could be a real wow moment so i think there's a lot to be said from where we've come from and where we're going but from a retail perspective i feel that Probably, there's still, still some learning. There's still some learnings from it, which is great because there's all mm. opportunities. Well, I would definitely defer to your teams in terms of the client response to the iteration, effectively the frequency of new product, and whether that affects their decision-making process in the here and now. But you can't take away from the fact that there's definitely been an elevation in the number of pieces and new pieces coming to market, and it seems to be, to your point about the uh, regularity, the frequency, so to speak. In some brands' cases, it's very much, I believe, very much a conscious decision to go after what was the fashion cycle, really, to get onto that sort of trend-based uh, moment where now fashion, big fashion houses will have six or eight seasons a year now between cruises, menswear, women's wear, haute couture, et cetera. So, so the audience for watches who have been educated into that system would quite understand why watches were being launched with such regularity. For those that don't follow the fashion seasons, 
they would probably ask the question, why am I being inundated with a product that has a long life, shelf life, unlike fashion, but I'm being asked to reconsider what's available on a very regular basis. I think that's the distinction I'd make. Which brand are you looking at and why are they going to such a pace? And also they're not seasonal necessarily. I mean, it's, it'd be wonderful if you do have a watch for either every season or every occasion. So, But it... I can see how it mirrors the fashion. You've got a, mm. a, a strong fashion background as well, so mm. you can see the the comparison to, between the two. From a personal perspective, the, the once a year Basel SHH as was, my understanding as a journalist attending those events was that we would be shown probably the next six months of product, and you would see the next twelve months, possibly thirty six months, depending on where they were. I love that, you think that. I love the fact that you think that the retailer actually has well, any more sway than I had, than, I had than evidence that you often <laughs> saw pieces that I said, "Hang on," I, and I'd it'd often often be an anecdotal conversation with you at the end of the day, and I go, "Hang on," I was there and I didn't see that. So there was definitely some sharing and not sharing, but this it felt like an oceanic swell of product. You know, it was a two to three year out product development phase, then the communication phase, and then the product in store phase. And that very gentle oceanic swell has now become a crashing wave on the shoreline on a very regular basis. And that's, I mean, it's exciting. It keeps it, it keeps it fresh, keeps it fun. But again, I think in some instances, it can make it difficult for the client to understand what they're being offered and why it's coming now and what might be lying behind it, which is why we can talk about some of the new launches, actually, because that's interesting to watch when collections, entire collections launch and whether they get the same, uh, I suppose, do they get the same attention now that a single model, a single reference could get if it was delivered in the right way at the right time. And I think that's been quite objectively interesting to view that somehow the, the whole notion of how you talk about your entire range of watches has had to change because people are now very focused on individual timepieces. I think we could do a, an entire podcast on just that one point alone, actually. The, does the uh, an entire collection get more airtime? I think it depends on the brand and the model. If somebody's launching a model in particular, there's a reason that it to be on for, in, in, in isolation on its own. Um, we do see that there is much more marketing, advertising, support behind a entire collection. Um, but I think also there's, if, if a brand is just launching one piece, there's there's a reason for it, um, particularly if it's going to be a limited edition. Or, it's, it's that, it's, or if the ambition is the halo effect. You yeah. can't have this. However, there is a wider collection. This, and this is the one piece that, that this is the standout alone, which I think actually goes to the point you said about the fairs when you're shown potentially slightly different product. Because mm. as a journalist, you're shown what brands want you to talk about, whereas they show us what they want us to buy. That works very um, closely to the fashion world as well, where they are called press pieces, effectively. They're a garment or an accessory that is in a fantastic shade or a fantastic colorway or in a fabric that you'll never find in the stores because the cost of fabrication is such that they wouldn't want to ma mass produce it. But that's the piece designed to get the press excited. And you're absolutely right. The, the, I, I always loved the phrase when I first started going to the fairs and it was the first time I heard this beautiful translation, the novelty. Because a novelty to me feels as something that's slightly discardable. You know, novelty is something that is just created to create a novel idea but novelties in the context of the watch industry are the are the singular pieces the uh, the hero pieces often um which can be incredibly unnovelistic in the sense they're not there simply to entertain and, and distract they are the greatest product that they've made that year so the term novelty was something that the press were always attached to and i think from your perspective is that but what 
is going to sell? What is the client looking for and what are they expecting to get? And what is the value for money proposition as well? Because I think, again, I think at some points in my recent history, the notion of a value proposition within watchmaking had not been something they were overly keen to discuss with journalists because they were much more interested in share of voice and creating a story around their own timepieces. Do you think that's how the um, key moments and milestones have developed throughout the year? So we've talked a little bit about Watches and Wonders and what that means to the industry. It is the launches, it's the novelties, it's for press, it's for retailers, it's for the entire horological world to descend upon the brands, those that are showcasing. And now as we see other events, where there are launches or product discussions, they don't all have the same purpose. So we've now got GPHG, which is becoming, um, it's not a selling event. It's never about, it's, 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 not, it's not a commercial event, but the detail and the, the, the product behind it, it elevates brands and product in a different way. I think it really um, gives awareness to categories and product that is outside of the commercial domain. Um, we've got LVMH Watch Week. We've got... Um, um, Watch time in New York in in October, and there's various others as well. There was D- Dubai Watch Week, Miami next mm-hmm. year. So, what do you think that these events, their purpose is? Because they're not all sellable. Then they're, they're not all there for the commercial element for retailers to come in, purchase, take back to their stores, and sell. I think it's I think it's really interesting this uh, this involvement, the diaspora almost of, of watch telling, watch storytelling events, which is effectively what these are. As you say, they're not direct to market selling events. Presumably, those that can can make um, uh, inroads into locating and making sure that they, they get specific um, pieces, particularly if they're very hard to achieve. But fundamentally, they're there to increase the attention and increase the visibility for brands and what we've seen and fairly you described it is this LVMH watch week Louis Vuitton Mode Hennessy uh, owns a number of watch brands um, hadn't stepped away from Basel World where they traditionally had shown but along with everyone else was forced to move on after Basel World collapsed therefore they took up a position in watches and wonders but just before that i.e. In, in 2018 or February 2019 I think it was they hosted their first LVMH watch week which was a dedicated standalone event for the purpose of being able to allow LVMH to tell its own story around its watches and all the brands um, at LVMH uh, took part and fundamentally that was a chance to get in get the journalists specifically and of course Faye and her um, cohort uh, in, on the retail side of the business together and to really show them what was going to come down the pipe that year and it generally takes place end of January beginning of February and then we fell back into the old regime which was Watches and Wonders when it relaunched it came out in April so we got to April I'm sure I've missed one already but there's specifically a gap in the in the travel diary when people could go away, work out what they were doing, and then come back together. And we all came back together at Watches and Wonders. And then specifically, there's been, I think, two great uh, evolutions in this. One is, again, a, a, the result of uh, the COVID uh, moment. We had Geneva Watch Days, which launched at the end of August, steered by um, Bulgari, steered by its uh, CEO, Jean-Christophe Babin which at the time, due to travel limitations, was very much seen as a national, i.e. Geneva and other cantons, then more European-based event. And because it fell at the end of the summer, and as we know, the Swiss come back to work earlier in the the summer than the rest of us do, so although we're still 
finding our way back from our beaches. By the third week of August, Switzerland's about making watches. So the point being that that was the sort of the gathering of the clan the first day back at term. And I particularly spotted this year that it was it did feel like more of an industry event because everyone was there to say hello to each other and to catch up on all their news. And again, not a direct-to-market selling event, but it was open to the public. So the other great thing is, where are these events going in terms of public access? And and I suppose the next one really that has really sort of gained ground, I think mainly because it's so powerful as a regional moment, is the um, Dubai Watch Week. But again, that's public facing as well. So people can interact with that there. And the GPHD, as you mentioned, which is often called the Oscars of the uh, watch world, but its president, Nick Fawkes, prefers to call the Oscars the GPHG of the fil f film business. Um, it does sit rather alone and away from these other moments because it's a chance genuinely for the watch industry to celebrate itself and to give prizes. More importantly, we're seeing sort of some deeper trends in, in, in the storytelling around watches and increasingly the story of independent watchmakers and independent watchmakers have proven to be very successful at gphg over the years and they continue to do so and i think that has sort of again educate i think to be fair gph probably works more in educational role than it does in a, in a storytelling role i agree a lot of the products that are there allow people to investigate further if you've got an interest and it might not be something that you would naturally um come across i mean the audacity award is my yeah. favorite just purely because of the name of it and <laughs> why shouldn't why shouldn't a, a a group of products be celebrated for its audacity because it's not they're not going to sit in every store it doesn't matter what what level where you're retailing whether it's high street whether it's airports whether it's incredibly exclusive and your own boutiques um but i like that element that it has that less commercial element i suppose to it just gives that that um opportunity for people to explore understand and look at the brands in a slightly different way and i wonder if the noticeable by absence brands actually does the wider event a favor um, just it gives it gives everything else some some space to breathe because the pillars of the industry are not going to change it doesn't mean there's not room for anybody else but they are they're important and they're valid and they're relevant but when you see something like, um, I don't know, Bulgari winning for the second time in a row, the jewellery um, award, um, Bulgari isn't everyone's first choice for a timepiece. And the mm. piece that won, it is a watch. However, it is much more a jewellery piece. Um, and Yulis Nardan, again, sort of their, their mm. freak piece that was a launch this year. Um, an incredible watch. I mean, who thought a watch without a... <laughs> a bezel, yeah. a crown, and hands, whatever, whatever. But we've completely sold yeah. out. So Yulis Nardan is, I think that that is coming slightly more into the mainstream. There is an awareness of that brand. But um, I like what that event does for the industry. Um, we were really lucky to host it in our Soho store in, in New York earlier this year. And it did feel like the Oscars. And I, yeah. I, was, I felt, sure. I felt <laughs> very pri privileged to go. But um, it does speak to every event has a different purpose and they're all relevant. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about Ulysse Nardin. Incredible piece of watchmaking. Possibly it would be difficult to get that story across with the with the amount of storytelling going on around watches. At the same time, the CEO of Piaget, who picked up a, a, another award for its watchmaking, made the point that Piaget is renowned for its jewellery and from his, for his personal uh, 
interest, getting the story of its watchmaking clearer and louder is, is important. So each brand comes at each event with its own prospectus of what it can expect mm. to take away from it. And it does seem to serve more than one purpose, which is, which is fantastic. How was the event in New York? It was wonderful. The, we had the, the full collection before the awards itself, so we didn't know who the winners were. Last year, it's an evolution for us. And the team had done an incredible job. Um, all the industry were there, the brands. It was a, It felt like a celebration, which for me is quite different and new because whilst we go to all these great events, particularly the launches, um, it was a celebration of horology and some of the brands that you wouldn't necessarily get to see or expect to see. Whether you nominate, whether the, the I don't, I'm not sure of the um, process itself. Were you not on the? I'm on. I'm an academy member. I wasn't the jury this. I wasn't on the jury this year, so I can tell you a little. But we're all sworn to secrecy. But it's. Uh, I think a lot's been written about it recently. This year, I noticed more than most, which explains a little bit more about well, Brian Duffy, your CEO at Watches of Switzerland Group. He and I um, both served on the jury, and I think he he served again last year. So we're very familiar with the idea. It brings together a lot of different people from the watch world it does sort of authenticate the idea that you can take a slice of life and say right that was the year in watches and these are the pieces that people made and wanted to present to the world yeah and eight hours is quite a lot because there's 82 nominations this mm. year so i imagine it's a full day but incredible that's it's not an opportunity everybody has so i imagine it yeah was, it was no it's a great honor fun. to do it and again you learn as i've always said you learn more in five minutes in a situation like that than you could learn i don't want to be disrespectful but me you could learn in five years trying to re research it and, and and get it out of people but what i've well, I just want to make one more point about it, which is interesting. I have watched this in real time. We talk about how it does elevate and it does expand the universe of watchmaking, or at least horology, is when I first started um, putting up my suggestions for who should be included in the long list, I think the category of mechanical clock got about two or three entries. And now it's it's a 12-strong it's a shortlist yeah, based on a... This year. Yeah, it's a really interesting... Now, I'm not suggesting we're all going to rush out and buy a mechanical clock tomorrow, but the point is that that sort of scrutiny, that sort of oversight has allowed people people to feel no there is a market for this and we mm. should become a part of it so i think the year i think as you say the year in in events has become and i think the second most important point after the fact that they have sp spread their wings quite literally is that it has globalized this moment you know it's i think what lvmh watch week was in singapore this year i think it's in the u.s next year miami um, miami it's going to miami Obviously, Watch and Wonders will remain in Geneva for obvious reasons, but you know there is now beginning to be sort of a global and temporal share, mm. which, which which is great, and again reflects on the what I've always felt to be one of the innate characteristics and strengths of the watch industry is that it's a it, it is a truly global brand, a global business, in the sense that it doesn't have to re-engineer its products for different territories. It, it can do and it might do, but it doesn't need to. And I think that's a really, really strong def definer of what makes the watch industry different to the fashion industry. So that idea that having produced something that is singular, that can travel the entire globe, should it wish to, is now represented by a calendar that is also global, I think is a really great thing. Yeah, it's very poetically put, actually, as well. I mean, it's beautifully put because I think where you referenced when we talk about JPHD and there was a lot more around it this year it's, it speaks exactly to your point as to how the industry has evolved and evolving and mm. constantly responding to interest and demand not always a selling commercial event but to the to the point whether it's budapest whether it's uh singapore or whether it's um, geneva it's great so 
Do you see any other key changes in the industry outside of those moments that we're seeing? Well, I think we've talked about the highlights. I think some of the lowlights we don't need to dwell on is the the rapid speed at which certain models became highly unavailable. And we all know the reasons for that. The watch industry works far in advance in terms of its production quotas. No one saw the pandemic coming, but therefore no one understood that there would be people during the pandemic with a lot more disposable income than they expected to have. And the opportunities to spend, in my case, to spend hour upon hour <laughs> researching watches. And I think that imbalance led to a curiosity, should we call it that, by which certain watches were elevated way beyond what was ever considered or could ever have been imagined to be their true value in the marketplace. That distorted, and I think to a certain extent disturbed certain parts of the watch industry. Um, and I think it led to some un unruly acts around, you know, who wanted to get hold of those watches and what they were prepared to do to get hold of those watches. But I think the salient point to this is that process is now unraveling. I mean, we can see quite clearly that the ship is righted itself now. We can see that waiting lists are coming down. Allocations are probably uh, less of a vital um, element of particular model sales. But what we're fundamentally seeing is that the industry is getting back in line with where it would have been because it's three years now. So production has increased. We have seen the secondary market, which we'll come on to why this I think this is important, but we've seen the secondary market lose its heat and light a bit, which is probably no bad thing. But the signal reason why this is happening, I think, is because the brands themselves, and in the case of Watch the Switzerland Group, you have understood that this watch is a component part of a lifetime's ownership program and it can be traded and it's something that the what we call certified pre-owned the cpo business has grown exponentially i think in response to the fact that people understand that watches can be acquired on the secondary market but also to reinsure those people who are buying a watch today that there is a real residual value in what they've bought and i think to protect particular watches and the brands that produce them it's become absolutely vital to protect the environment around how these watches are being traded and who's trading them so i think that for me has been one of the great great sort of developments of the last sort of 12 12 to 18 months we've come from a particular high i think it was called in march 22 when prices were absolutely off the scale on the secondary market we're starting to see a little bit of equilibrium um, return only accounted for by the fact that there are certain watches that have retained an extraordinary rarity and therefore value. But by and large, I get the impression, you must correct me if I'm wrong, that rating lists are no longer quite as extraordinary as they were. But at the same time, the brands have themselves realized that this is not a good communication tool for the, for, for the client to not be able to buy the watch they thought they were going to be able to walk in and buy. And I can reflect on the time when I would walk into a store and buy a watch. And the notion that I would have to be—I'd have to wait for it—was nonsensical. <laughs> you know, why would I wait for a watch? Watches are produced in volume and they're sold in store. And you walk in and say, "Oh, that." that when I when I speak, retail one hundred and one, <laughs> retail one hundred and one. And when I speak to um, friends and acquaintances who have entered this market via this moment, this this longueur, as I describe it, during the pandemic, and they can't quite account for the fact that it was ever possible because they have had to journey through the rating list and the allocations but the broader point is not all watches carry a rating list or require an allocation the broader point is your your investment into your watch is securitized more and more by the opportunity to enter into a cpo 
relationship with a retailer. And as we can speak about independent indivi individual CPOs that are being organized by on brand by brand basis. Mm -hmm. In terms of the general retailer experience, your watch is as, is as valid and as valuable to your retailer where you purchased it as it is to yourself. And I think that's what perhaps was missing before. And I think that's a really exciting thing. So it's interesting because we would normally talk about new products and launches along those lines. The CPO um, and the that famine and and the demand on the watches that we, we saw a couple of years ago, the landscape has changed. And we're not going to say it's done a complete 180, but it's yeah. certainly stabilizing um, from the frenzy that, we have, that we've, we've become familiar with. It feels there's a keel back on the boat. I think there was a moment when we felt the boat was rocking in every which way. And I think the keel has now been reestablished. And I think, again, I think it's a sort of relaxation of supply and demand um, brought on by external pressures as well, obviously. Um, uh, cost of living crisis will have Im will have impacted on people's desire or even ability to put themselves forward to buy a watch in some instances. But I think the keel is back on the boat, and I think what the what, what the brands have done has become more assured about uh, about communicating around the likelihood of being able to own particular references. Um, but it's also allowed them to sort of reassure those that are, are wanting to go on a journey with that particular brand that they can do so in safety because they will be working in this CPO uh, market with them. Let's talk about social. Bill, yes. you referenced um, social mm. media and particularly a few years ago where all the information was, you know, the, just the, the streams and the streams of information was at your fingertips. It, that doesn't go away. Um, it becomes more, more and more relevant. But... How do you think it drives clients into store now? Because we're not seeing bricks and mortar become less relevant. We're seeing it become actually more so. Watches of Switzerland are growing rapidly. We work in, we work in a luxury industry and I'm very grateful for it. So I don't like to take for granted what it is that we do. But the growth element would speak to there is still a demand even in a as we go into a year potentially of slightly nervousness and um, I, I'm, I'm expecting next year probably things to be slightly more conservative in terms of pricing and launches but we're not seeing we're not seeing anything slow down too much where anyone you know it's a robust industry right mm. well I think there's two points there I think one is that all consideration around acquisition is is sort of predicated on on the two weights on the scale which is resource and sentiment you know a do i have the resource and is there the resource to supply me with the product i want and over here is my sentiment is like how strongly do i feel this is something i want to do and i think we're talking about an industry that balances their ability to resource your your desire um and that what they can't control is your sentiment around doing that and i think that's the game we all play and say how do we feel about it which brings me to my point about in the, the height of the um of the pandemic, obviously we were all driven online. So digital sales became absolutely, became vital to any business to survive. But it also inculcated in, in the minds of those who were very successful selling online that this was going to carry on and become the only way to market product and to sell product. And I can remember reading headlines and obviously we could see the crashing value of commercial premises, not on Bond Street, I has, has hasten to add, but there had that we, we could see what looked like to be a lot of, uh, uh, reasons why bricks and mortar would lose all of its appeal and yet look what's happened i mean less than two years um out of that you see the reinvestment in bricks and mortar and you also see i think in the in the in the client a sense that 
particularly if they're following the hotorological route, if they're looking at fine watchmaking, they'll hear a lot about handwork in watchmaking. They'll, they'll learn a lot about how the human touch is very, very important to this day in assembling micro elements of a watch. It's microengineering, but it's phenomenal. So it doesn't surprise me then that somebody might actually want to go and enjoy a little bit of human touch in the process of owning a watch. Um, this is not a replenishable. It's not your dishwasher powder you know it's not your washing up liquid it's something that you're going to engage with every day of your life hopefully and it's also something you're investing into so it makes sense that you want a little bit of reassurance and that comes from human interaction i think personally so bricks and mortar is whether it's striding back is another matter but it's interesting that you mentioned that you are refurbing stores and opening new stores to 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 account for the demand for people who want to come in i do think again i might call me old-fashioned but i think when you are investing in something uh, like a watch you there's a there has to be a bit of ceremony attached to it there should be a bit of ceremony absolutely it deserves it, it. Yeah, it, it deserves yeah, it exactly. you, you want to elevate the experience it's yeah. not it's it not can't a cappuccino. just be transactional yeah it's not a cappuccino you buy on the way to the station in the morning you know it's a watch and you should actually record that moment it should be recorded probably would will be with security cameras but my point being it's good that you can go into store and do it and I think the role that social media has played and continues to play is it's become a, it's become a very valuable, very um, uh, powerful tool to keep a conversation going around uh, watches and watchmaking that can sit primarily within a brand universe if, if required, i.e. if the brand invests into the influencer in this instance, or it can be much more generalized and it can be a collector forum, it can be a connoisseur's forum. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm a bit embedded by now, but I follow lots of different personality types. Some are people who have nothing to do with the watch industry, but I, I know for a fact like their watches, and therefore they will occasionally post watches, to people who are very involved in the industry, to people who are paid by the industry to post their watches or post watches on their accounts. And I think all of this just keeps this conversation bubbling over all the time to the point where you could become a bit obsessed. I mean, you could literally go down a rabbit hole every day and just go after different models. And I think some people take great delight in that, knowing full well they will never, ever get to own some of the pieces that they're being that are being shared. But at the same time, they just enjoy the community of it. And I think this community... Community is a really nice word, yeah, actually. And I think the community element of, 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 is something that brands have obviously um, become aware of. And some brands are better than others at maintaining. Now, Ironically, the brands that are probably best at doing it produce the fewest number of watches because it allows for a much tighter community to take hold. It's hard for a mass brand to produce a community around its products. But that isn't to say that it can't be done. And I think we've seen with, for instance, the launch of the 60th, 60th anniversary of Carrera. You know, the Carrera story was told principally through a very valuable piece of um, celebrity real estate in Ryan Gosling. But you also had the community around the Carrera and who understood what it stood for in terms of uh, chronographs and motorsport derived watch watches. So the community works outside of what is probably quite a tight, by now quite a tight social influencer market. Because as we can see, there's, there's, there's a role for everyone, but it's only one or two people per uh, arena who's allowed to perform at the very top of that and particularly move between brands, which less and less uh, influencers have the chance to do. So we've covered off quite a lot, but one thing we haven't actually spoken about is watches <laughs> this year. I think it would be churlish of us to do a review of the year and not talk about a couple of a couple yeah. of pieces and th more themes, I think. Mm. Um, I'm glad you say that, Faye, because I, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you again, is that 
this hasn't been a year for I think picking your watch of the year. I don't, I just don't feel for my purposes that really happened. But in terms of strong themes, it's been one of the strongest years ever, I think, for developing trends in watches, genuinely. Yes. So what we're saying is that the themes are stronger than the watches this year. Yeah. I mean, I I'm think, nervous to say that, no, if I'm honest, but well, it's... I, mean, I, I think I'm not nervous because I think it speaks to a broader choice as well. I think mm. it, it, it speaks to a broader opportunity um, because I think those trends are very... I don't like the word mainstream, but they're very open source trends. They're trends that anyone could buy into. Whereas there are some trends that are by their nature make it more difficult to buy into. And I'm thinking, for instance, the um I think one of the strongest suits of the watch uh launches this year has been this in another in another world, we'd call it shrinkflation, you know, when your Mars bar is shrunk by ten percent, but the price hasn't gone down. But in this case, watches have got smaller this year. And it's, it speaks both to this sort of non-gendering uh, approach that the watchmakers have, uh, have embarked on, thankfully, after many, many years of talking. The phrase in the industry I, re I recall is pink it and shrink it, Well, which was, <laughs> which was the only device by which some watch brands were able to produce a ladies model. Yeah. But now we're seeing watch sizes overall coming down. And we, we saw are. obviously, but in, in notionally in interesting models like the Tudor, Black Bay 54, which is now down to 37 millimeters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Vacheron brought the overseas down to 35. Yeah. Um, Hublot, I've never done the spirit of Big Bang in 32 millimeter. Now, that that will be a ladies' piece in that yeah. case size, but yeah. the, it's still. Um, the Rajamir Kuranto from yeah. Panerai, that's the 40 yeah. mil for the first, 40 mil. Yeah. For the first time. Um, so we, we are seeing that. I, I'm not sure we'd use it in the same vein as shrinkflation. <laughs> I wonder if it's more of a an approach both genders can wear it. So it's 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 not it's yeah. not specific to it's a, I, we'll make it small and yeah. put a pink dial in it and maybe some diamonds for yeah. a, for a lady or it's a big oversized watch with a blue dial therefore it's got yeah. to be for for a guy. We are moving further and further away from that. Yeah. And I wonder as brands are it's just another area that they can grow into i.e. the unisex area and mm. not make assumptions of what clients colorways want to wear um, yeah. it's 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 just it's and and we're not defeminizing watches in any way i mean those the acronaut the decorated acronauts um at patek philippe were gorgeous i mean it's not really about that it's not sublimating our need for decoration or no decoration i think it actually looking at particularly i think cartier is always a, a very good weather vein for where the industry might be going generally and for the last few years they're really focused on their icon products their icon models and now we're seeing pieces like the tank normal came this year which is beautiful watch if i were to have a watch of the year mm -hmm. i think the brushed gold tank normal yes. was incredible but also the ban noir i haven't met anyone male or female who didn't see that ladies piece and go that is a beautiful beautiful watch and i think the market is really accepted that it is a beautiful watch but i think overall this reduction in overall case size is also taught to a return to classicism which as we know when 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 the world becomes a little bit more turbulent a little less nice there is a retreat or a reversal back into things that have always held their own and and in terms of watchmaking that period in the golden age of wristwatch manufacturing was between the years of sort of the 50s and the 70s and there in, the, in those days the case sizes were smaller yeah slightly and more reserved, reserved yeah, slightly reserved. more Discreet, conservative possibly. yeah yeah um 
but but against that sort of not rush at all, but that sort of move back towards a discretion, which we can all understand why you may want to have a more discreet watch. You've got this ex simultaneous explosion in incredible color and variety. And color again was massive this yeah. year. Um, and we saw players who we would net well Rolex we saw did the Oyster Perpetual 36 uh, in the last couple of years with wonderful sort of stellar deride bright colored dials yep. now we have the emoji uh, uh, date just it we was had fun, the puzzle wasn't it? we had the puzzle op you know it's it's um you know it, it was a sense of joy entering the watch world from a direction that you possibly didn't expect it to um, and with an outcome that I think has been really positive. And I've, we've seen brands, Oris, with the... Kermit, I think, yeah. is for me, was a standout for the year. Mm. Because it was brave of them as well and bold. And so I am going to quote somebody else. You can't be angry with Kermit. <laughs> and he just makes you smile. And yeah. the Oris is... is, a, is, is an established brand but they are much smaller than some of the others that we that we stock it's been a great you know great stand up for them but again it's that it's got people and the industry talking about oris mm. and they're a very legitimate brand they have they do a lot on sustainability um they're the only i think they're the only brand that has it offers a 10-year warranty on some of their timepieces so when we were talking earlier on about these halo pieces no one was going, let's do a stand-up piece to bring the attention to all the other things that we do. I just think they've done it really well. And it for me, it does... They move slightly more in the peripheral for me. Mm. Um, they're not constantly, you know, because there is a lot of watch noise. There's a lot of activity. I personally overlook a, m myself and my team of 50 different watch brands. So you, there's, there's a lot going on all the time. Yeah. So seeing something like that, and I saw it, the press launch... I saw a press release of it a couple of days before the fair... It was under embargo still and often when you see them just on your screen mm. it's a bit disappointing or you you can't gauge it some some brands you know it's going to work some but it's never ever ever the same as seeing it in in real life and i was pleasantly surprised i remember just feeling really happy and I, then seeing it in in the flesh and yeah. you know it's great i mean it's a beautiful green watch which they could do as you say the acre styles that they've done on the have been incredibly um, colorful and really powerful dials but what was interesting about that particular watch, it was the Kermit Association, which a brand like Oris, indeed Muppets, any brand, no. could easily have said no. Yeah. And that's what I think was the game changer. Yeah. Like somebody was, Rolf, the CEO, presumably just said no, yes. Yeah. And that that's what gave it, I think, real um, confidence. And you no, know, I, I, I take your point. It was fun. It's bringing joy in. But then we saw it across the board. I mean, the Seamaster was celebrating 75 years this year, and they did an amazing collection. I think it's 11... Um, references across eight models all in blue dials which is a big big statement of, of i thought that was brilliant of amiga mm. um what they did was they took their strongest model from every collection that was legitimate to their own branding and and their own pillars and the level of detail so for example the the, the deeper the movement in terms mm. of it how far you can go underwater mm. so it's um well, the plop prof is, well, don't quote me on this, must be about 11. The, the darker the dial, so yeah. they're not all the same variations of blue. I stand corrected, actually, yes. So basically the, the models were reflect, the, grade, the gradient of the dial, the tonality of the dial reflected how deep The it depth, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the 300 versus the plop prof, yeah. one's a much lighter blue versus yeah. the, the one that can go to the Mariana Trench. Yeah. It, Amiga did a brilliant job with that. 
the only criticism was availability mm. and they really didn't have it to support yeah. um it, you know interesting that they launched it in mykonos yes um, it's it's not a deep sea diving venue from my <laughs> from the accounts the recent accounts i've heard from people who've traveled there very few of them seem to be uh subaquatic animals but um but again i think that was sort of Tonally, at least, it was it was taking Omega out of one arena and placing it in another. Mykonos being the big party island of the Greek islands, you know, it was that idea that we are we are social we are social animals as well as great watchmakers. So, I think it comes back to the header really. What 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 are brands saying when they do events, and what what are brands saying when they sort of peel away from perhaps the more traditional trade oriented launches and do things off their own bat and i think we're seeing a little bit more character a little bit more personality it doesn't suit everybody it's and it's not it's not absolutely necessary i mean some other brands do very little and they still seem to have a great communication tool in the product itself but other but those that rely on more marketing obviously had to take more play when it comes to yeah i don't think things. i don't think the um the anniversary piece of the collection for um for Amiga had anything to do with the. It was lovely if you got to go to Mykonos. Mm. Um, I didn't, but nor did I. It, <laughs> but um, I think the collection stood for itself. It was yeah. really impressive what yeah. they've done. They thought about it. They delivered. It was on brand for them. They'd taken key pieces that they knew to be successful with a very on-trend dial, mm. but each of them had a slightly different, as, as we said, the tonality was the word you use, which is great. Um, I was really impressed with that, and mm. the market responded accordingly. So that's a really good example of it not needing to be marketing-led, yeah. and it isn't uh, novelty, and no. opposite word, opposite use of the word that we were using earlier. Yeah. It is a not a, a, a novelty piece mm. um so i was yeah it was it was lovely to see that and i think those type of launches that's what's really interesting for clients to see because they've got a selection it's not the same watch with different dial options this was a full collection there was product that's already relevant to amiga and their refresh i suppose and what they've done and the case back obviously mm. um that was that was really exciting. That's the type of thing that really makes my job interesting. Yeah, and I think we should speak about a. We mentioned earlier about the the place for a collection within the context of a business that's working quite rapidly now and is iterating through individual references at a pretty regular basis. But there were two launches that I thought um, I was interested in talking about because they come at it with each with their own stories, which I don't think quite cut through as strongly as perhaps they might have done. The first is the IWC Engineer, which came back this year as a collection, designed, as we know, by Joel Genta. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is the Zenith Pilot, which is, as we all know, Zenith is the only brand who's allowed to put, put the word pilot, pilot on the dial. On the dial. Mm. And obviously the Pilot line that Zenith brought back this year, completely redesigned, completely new case, um, uh, case design. Um, it was a, it was a full flight collection of watches, as was the engineer. And I and I I, well, I wonder and I I ask, in some ways, has this idea, this notional idea of bringing a collection to market, is it does it lose out now because we're talking so much about individual references? Whereas the Carrera releases came episodically, mm -hmm. uh, obviously not a new collection, sixty years old, but they were being delivered in an episodic manner, which allowed you to build up a portfolio in your mind of okay, it was the skipper in the summer, and you know it's the champagne, the beautiful CHN in, in the autumn, and um, you know there's different ways of bringing these pieces to market, and and from a client perspective, do you want to see a full collection day one, or do you want things to arrive in their various um, guises? 
I can't speak on behalf of every one of our clients, but I'm going to give I'm going to give you my opinion to answer <laughs> your question. I think if it's a collection, you want to see the full collection in its entirety. So you have the choice of whether it's the ceramic or the steel, mm. um, whether it's the bracelet or the strap version. So you can see all of these pieces in front of you, try them on. They're tactile products. You know, mm. we want to be able to try, test and try and feel. Waiting to see what the bracelet version, as an example, might be versus the, the like or the chronograph three months later. I don't think it holds as much weight, particularly mm. if you are launching a collection. The examples you use with career with with tag, mm. there were different Carreras. Mm. So there was the brightly coloured dial. So we uh, pink, funnily enough, the, the yes. fuchsia yes, that we've done. Yes, thirty six millimeters. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is different from um, from some of the other pieces that fall within the Carrera collection that 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 was launched. Mm. So. I'm not sure if it's the same. I was. It's unfair because I wasn't comparing like with like because that is, a, as you say, an existing co co collection and there's an ongoing Carrera collection which wasn't reflected in the special pieces produced this year. I suppose my general point was those were two, I think, two um, highly regarded re-entries effectively. Mm -hmm. One designed in the 70s, the pilot watch goes back to Zenith, right back to the uh, uh, war, wartime. So, you know, you're looking at models that in a way... I probably would have garnered more attention a few years ago, but I think just the sheer rapidity by which pieces are being handed around and passed around socially mm -hmm. means that it probably didn't go. I didn't, I didn't see as much of them as I thought I might, given, given the strength of each collection. Yes, I. my preference in where we sit with the industry is when they're launching collections, they all arrive at the same time, and yeah. then you've got that. Yeah. You've got some continuity. I don't necessarily want to wait for the blue no. dial version or something to arrive. And let's not forget the engineer as launch was boutique only. Yeah. So I don't... Well, maybe thereby, thereby hangs a tail. Yeah. Um, IWC have made some changes as the mm. year's gone on. Um, it's becoming more selected distribution versus mm. some of the boutique pieces, which I think is very sensible for them. Mm. I feel like it... I, the original drive would be to drive clients to their boutiques. Mm. If they're not getting the uptake and the response that they wanted then they're reopening it back to, right. to to selected partners. Yeah. So again, it goes, I suppose it goes back to that point on how we see the landscape changing and the relationships that brands have with, with their retail partners as yeah. well. But um, the, Well, I certainly the, wasn't going to dive into that because that's very much your wheelhouse, but it, that that is the ongoing, setting aside the rebalancing act that we've gone through recently. It's how brands are working with retailers and and to what degree does the client wish to where does that client relationship sit and who needs it and i and i personally not because i'm sitting here with you Faye, but i think the relationship with the retailer because the retailer can show you the horizon the the the, the full landscape is, is crucial i think that for me is the strongest suit mm. obviously when people enter into different phases of their collecting life then perhaps they can operate successfully with a brand relationship but i think formally and fundamentally the the best relationship is with a retailer because that's where the expertise and the knowledge sits. That speaks to the point on Excuse the me. store expansions and refurbishments, hopefully elevating the experience because that's what our clients want. Mm. So if brands can work with retailers in that vein or mm. understand that, then that will come away from all the boutique additions, et cetera, et cetera. But we should talk about 2024. Well, yeah, yeah, we've, um, it's round the corner. Um, I want to talk some more about watches. We Do haven't, you? we're, I've, trends we haven't we've Have we only touched on okay. well i just it's i think it's i think it leads very nicely into 2024 because i think we'll see some continuation of some of the trends we've seen i think there's going to be a lot more on sustainability 
So Chopard do their Lucien Steele, mm. um, um, Panerai on their on theirs as well, and it's coming from very different angles. We've already, already talked about Oris; they do a lot with um, with their dials and recycled materials. Every brand is waking up to this conversation and taking their little piece of ownership. So I think we will see that. Um, I think we're going to continue to see some of the what you have referenced as the shrinkflation. I'm going to call it um, unisex case sizing. Um, I'll call it return to normal. <laughs> return I, anything to normal. over 38 millimeter looks slightly large on my wrist. But to your point about sustainability, I think this new transparency audit that's been launched, mm. uh, it's, I wouldn't suggest it's a problem for, for watchmakers, but it's, as an industry, it's not one that's traditionally been given over to oversharing around some aspects of its supply chain. And I think just the oversight that, that's going to be required now will probably now, we've always spoken, Faye, you and I, about how the dust-to-dust, dust, the, the, the lifetime value of a watch is unmatched in the luxury arena. I mean, it far outlasts. I mean, it lasts generations. It can last over 100 years. So, you know, operationally, sustainability is, is built into a wristwatch if it's a mechanical timepiece that's well-maintained. So there's for a long time, the idea of sustainability and watchmaking didn't really travel together. And then we saw notionally uh, approaches being taken by brands to perhaps swap out certain elements of the watch that they could swap out for things that had that had previously served as fishing nets or or um in this case recycled steel in the case of uh showpads launch in watches and wonders but this transparency audit is going to push this much further and much faster than it has done previously okay. that'd be interesting to see that how yeah. that's excelled next year because they'll have to start it'll be as you say the speed of which um mm. it's being introduced or, or or worked on um yeah and it's not just language in the watch world is it the it's 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 global and in and yeah. so many elements so we will see legislation now really start to take over and and, and in companies industries that aren't um, working to a more sustainable profile will start to realize they'll count the cost for that so this is something that is almost it's, it's supranational now but it's also built into the way that we as a i think we as a consumer are now feeling about product and it may not be consumer-led at the moment I mean, with respect. I think it is. Well, I, I think I, there's I, an I, element I, where clients are, are specifically looking for watches, product that they feel comfortable with, and mm. they're comfortable with where it's come from. Um, whether it's or anything from you know, the, going back to Breitling's um, their lab-grown diamonds mm. last year. Um, I don't know. I Tag think and uh, Tag Heuer, they did. They yeah. were the first to do it, weren't yeah. they? Well, they, they did it on the the, the plasma yeah. on the on the Torbium, an incredible watch. So I I think clients are looking for it as well. It's yeah. coming from every angle. But I think people, I, as it's more relevant in the papers, people, it's just an, it's awareness, it's education, and therefore it's okay for clients to be asking for it. And I think they'll continue to do so, as you yeah. say, these legislations. That's a very so, good point. Yeah. I mean, inevitably, if, if, if your clients are seeing developments in sustainability in every other product they're purchasing, why would they not ask the question around watchmaking? Yeah. We've also got, so that we will talk about very quickly. So I've covered off a couple of predictions. I want to know yours. We've got our centenary watch of the Switzerland next year. Mm, congratulations. Um, thank you. I wasn't there 100 years ago, but <laughs> it's, <all laughs> it's, it's not, it's not hard to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've only been there 20 years. Yeah. Um, so that will be exciting for, for the for the business and will there be some really special moments mm. and collaborations. Any key call outs that you think are going to happen either industry wise or product next year? 
I think, I think, with respect, I think the trends we've spoken about are pretty strong, mm -hmm. and knowing how they've been um, built in, that I don't think. I think, let's go through them. I think color and joy um, will hopefully infect other brands to sort of drop their guard a bit and be a bit more creative and a bit more. Um, I don't think it's about being zany or amusing, by the way. But I think you can do something that's that, as you say, excites. But, and, and something that also on a more serious level shows you as a brand are prepared to do things mm. that you might you could just as easily say no to, which has always been the traditional persona of perhaps particularly the Swiss watch industry. So I think that I think that's uh, hopefully that will set sail once more in 2024. Um, I think the not notion of watches resizing and regularizing to a smaller case diameter potentially is something that will really, I hope and I su suggest, will find a, a very willing client base. And that will be um, therefore maintained for a while longer. I think in terms of trends around watchmaking, I, f I don't. I feel that this collector gene that we've that we've become aware of, I think it is going to resolve itself into people having more than one watch. Perhaps not pursuing what I've referred to as the Grail watches quite so hard as they were, and to start to work out well, what does work for me. What is a, 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 a solid selection of watches I can wear every day. And, I, and will not look out of place. So I think I think the notion of all of this watch education that all of the, sadly a lot of the bad news has attracted is going to lead to more an understanding and hopefully more um, reasonable uh, approaches to building out collections. And I think that'll happen. I mean, hard and fast uh, prognoses for the state of the business is going to be difficult. I think next year, as you say, I think it's uh, I think everyone is taking a um, making a clear sorry. Everyone is having a clear look at next year and what it means to them. And I think that will affect the watch business. That's no bad thing, though. Ooh. Well, I, I, I don't mean that in a negative. I think, I think at times like this, um, consolidation um, and where money is being spent, it's, as you pointed out earlier, it's in the classics, it's in what you trust. And I feel that we represent that industry mm. quite well. Okay, so. I feel we could talk about the year for another three or four hours. Um, I don't think we've touched on half the things we wanted to talk about, but just in very briefly, as a, we've, we've talked about the landscape, we've talked about the key moments and milestones of the year. Only touched on a couple of products, but we've talked about the themes and I think you and I both steadfast on they're going to be the ones that we continue to see next year. I think we feel it might be a year of slight like consolidation perhaps i think so if, if i could be so bold the one thing that has surprised me that we haven't seen more watch dial names disappear in the last few years interesting just just by sheer contraction we've had the smartwatch now for 10 years now we've all come to our own relationship with a smartwatch whether we wear one or whether we don't or whether we wear a mechanical <laughs> and a smart uh, so it's, we're 10 years in now and I remember in that moment and people were saying this is going to be an extinction level event for mechanical watchmaking and of course it's been anything but as mm. we've seen with the prices of certain pieces. Well I hope that we are back again next year to be able to review what those changes look like and, um, and, and, and see how accurate our predictions are. Bill, it's been an utter pleasure to spend some time with you again today and do a review of this wonderful industry. Hope to see you next year and wishing you a very happy new year. Well, thank you, Fair. I really look forward and hopefully we will be back around this table um, reviewing your centenary year, 2024. Congratulations yes. again. Thank you. Lots to look forward to. Thanks for listening to the Calibre podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more from Watches of Switzerland, please follow us on your favourite podcast platform.